You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. We had uh, this upcoming conference called SAS, and the Security Analyst Summit is where a lot of researchers kind of come together to uh, show off some of the stuff that they found and, and try to release original content. That's Juan Andres Guerrero Sade. He's research czar at Chronicle. The report we're discussing today is titled, Who is Gossip Girl? And as we were building up to this, there was an itch that I, I wanted to scratch. There was a certain dissatisfaction with how we as an industry had gone about covering a cluster of very interesting operations. Essentially, between 2010 and 2012, malware analysts discovered some of the most interesting threat actors and, and malware-based operations that we know about today. It essentially birthed most of the private sector threat intelligence industry that we think of these days. But if you look back, we essentially found these things. Researchers at Symantec and Kaspersky and, and all these different places discovered these different pieces. They researched them in depth. And then we moved on and never looked back. And that was something that didn't quite sit right with me. I mean, we've, we've done other historical research. I had focused on Moonlight Maze with Kosen Ryu and Danny Moore and Thomas Ridd. We worked on this a couple of years back. And what we realized was that no matter how old the operation, taking that retrospective look 
book allows you to discover entirely new things and tie all these different things together you would have never imagined. So we wanted to do the same with this cluster. We wanted to say, you know, what's there that folks missed that they weren't able to see or that they didn't have the context to see or the tools to see? So that was the primary question that drove us. And you mentioned uh, the tools. Can, can you give us some perspective on when we're talking back to that era? What did we and did we not have back then? The change is very stark. For those that are familiar with some of the threat intelligence and malware analysis tools that folks are using these days, um, most of the tools that we think of as standard weren't really around. And by that, I mean Yara, which uh, is the primary signature engine that most folks use. It's like the universal signature language that most malware analysts and threat intelligence companies use in order to share rules and provide rules for customers. That wasn't really in wide adoption. We didn't have access to things like VirusTotal's RetroHunt, which is what most companies rely on to be able to do retrospective searches. We didn't have access to a lot of sort of the beefier metadata-based databases that we might use, like what's exposed by VirusTotal and what my team has access to. There's a lot of different things that we would rely on for even the simplest of malware analysis cases or threat intelligence investigations these days that, you know, we're talking seven years ago, were just not available to researchers. And to exemplify that, I mean, if you go back to some of the best reports that were written about Stuxnet, about Flame or Dooku or Gauss, there are no Yara rules available. Most of the hits and most of the samples that were discovered were discovered using the antivirus company's sort of proprietary technology to cluster things or to make signatures for things. And it was very good. I mean, they, they were able to discover these things and to track them. But there's something inherently, you know, proprietary by, by the very nature of what that is, that, that is inaccessible to anybody trying to recreate this research from the outside. So you decide you're going to take a look back. Where did you target your efforts? Well, to be honest, you know, we, we cast a very wide net. The idea was really to track down this name, right? So that, that was kind of the funny narrative that we set up for ourselves. You know, if you look back at some of these leaked documents, you know, a lot of people are kind of spooked away from looking at some of these slides, but they have some very interesting information about how the government or the, the intelligence community writ large does counter CNE, which is their name for essentially threat intelligence in the intelligence space. And, you know, you're, all, you're always very curious about, you know, what threat actors do they know about? What things do they see that we haven't seen? And one of the things that caught our attention was a name, which was Gossip Girl. Now, before we dig too far in, when you're talking about a slide deck, which slide deck are we talking about and how did it come to light? So this is one of the many documents that got released with the Snowden sort of leak of classified documents. And that's mm. why I say, you know, it's it. some people get very squirrely about looking at these things. Uh, thankfully, you know, I don't have a security clearance. I don't have to worry about that. Uh, I don't think I'll ever have a security clearance. But more importantly, it allows you to have a more comprehensive view and, and take everything into account. I mean, we can get into some complex discussions of what to do with this information. But from the perspective of, of an independent threat intelligence researcher, I think it's, it's better to have a wider view of everything that's at play. So looking at some of these decks, I think that some of the most interesting decks for the researchers trying to recreate some of this information are some that have that have been leaked out of CSEC, the Canadian Signals Intelligence Agency. And if I remember correctly, the name of this particular slide deck is Pay Attention to the Man Behind the Curtain. And it details some of their efforts to, and, and I'm, this is 
probably as early as 2010, if I remember correctly, that details their efforts to track different threat actors at a time when most of the private sector anti-malware industry wasn't really thinking about any espionage actors. They were just about to come on board that train. So there's a lot of institutional knowledge to learn from there, from whatever can be gleaned from little bullet points on slide decks. So, I mean, is it fair to say that at this stage of the game, these government organizations had a bit of a head start over folks in private industry? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in some ways, they, you know, they probably still do. I mean, we've gotten a lot better on the private sector. I think we have now developed techniques and have repositories of information that in some ways uh, rival the the intelligence community and hopefully complement the needs of the intelligence community, but they definitely have a much greater understanding of the institutions involved, of all source information that they're able to piece together. I mean, that's another thing you have to keep in mind. Uh, threat intelligence researchers, for the most part, focus on the technical artifacts that they're able to discern. Uh, we don't have access to human assets or the kind of political analysts and folks that that understand regions and get access to privileged information about these regions that they can put together with the incidents that we're looking at. Uh, that's actually one of the reasons that in, you know, in previous research, I, I've argued pretty vociferously for getting away from institutional attribution because the government sector and the intelligence community are, are in a fantastic position to put together clues from different sources of information. But in the private sector, we're really not. And many times it tends to kind of lead us down the wrong path. So you decide that you're going to uh, chase after this gossip girl. Where does it lead you? Well, it takes us down a very, very thin, narrow, speculative path of one other screenshot that essentially connects the main gossip girl to a known malware family, which is Flame. So for those listeners that might not know Flame, Flame was a fascinating discovery that comes along around 2012 when the, if I remember correctly, the Iranian CERT, uh, in cooperation with researchers from Crisis Lab in Hungary, with Kaspersky Lab uh, and some other folks, discovered this unbelievable modular espionage platform that was infecting not just Iran, but other institutions in the Middle East. And what was interesting about it was you're talking about uh, very big files. They contain a uh, Lua virtual machine that the attackers were using in order to expand their malware to whatever espionage requirements they had. So that might sound standard in 2019 when we get a different APT by a different vendor every other week. But in 2012, it, it was sort of this harbinger of things to come. It was this amazing example of what an espionage toolkit should look like, would look like, had looked like for sort of the big players in the game. Very forward looking. Oh, absolutely. And and moreover, it had been operating for at least four years before it was discovered. So you make this connection with Flame and where does that lead you? We knew that a lot of the research had already been done into Flame. I mean, we don't disparage. And when I say we, I mean, you know, Silas Cutler and I, my my partner in crime uh, here at Chronicle, we knew that a lot of the research had already been done, that there was a lot of amazing work already. Symantec researchers, crisis lab researchers, Kaspersky researchers had all published extensively on 
flame. But our thinking was, you know, at the time, they didn't have some of the tools that we do. They didn't have access to the repositories that we do. They didn't have access to, for example, some of the greatest uh, developments in threat intel tooling, like code similarity analysis, didn't really exist at the time, not at scale, the way that we use it now. So why don't we just take another look? You know, why don't we just go back and, and pull some of the samples and see what we can find? You, you know, you never know. We start going down this path of looking at flame. And that took us to a series of, of related malware families. So things like mini flame and gauss that were discovered at the time as related to flame. And then when you look at that, you realize, well, actually, at the time, researchers discovered that a flame component actually connects flame to the development of Stuxnet. Hmm. And that actually... The development of Stuxnet connects to the equation platform. And the development of Stuxnet connects to the Dooku platform. And essentially, it just started building out this tree where, you know, we, we were pulling on one very thin thread and we actually had a very wide wool sweater to make our way through. And to be clear, no one had made these connections before? Well, they had made some of the connections before. So what allowed us to do this work was that we were building, you know, we were standing on the shoulders of giants. A lot of these discoveries had been made back in the day, but some discoveries were not. So what, what we were able to do is standing on top of this research, taking it as both competent and authoritative, we then set out to say, well, what had they missed? So in that process, we make a series of small discoveries, and I think we make one big ontological reorganization, or I won't say discovery, but we, we essentially decided that what Gossip Girl, you know, taking a little creative license, what Gossip Girl would mean to us was what we would begin to call a supra threat actor. Hmm. Not to get too in the weeds of, um, you know, threat intelligence methodology and things that people might find to be too inside baseball. Essentially, in threat intelligence, we tend to focus on threat actors, the idea that there's a cluster of activity that we can associate with a single entity, whether that's a criminal organization or maybe an intelligence institution or a group of mercenaries, just a single organization. Mm -hmm. There's a deficiency there as we start to do more complex research, which is what happens when we start to find different threat actors playing together? What happens mm -hmm. when you see several independent threat actors with their own storied past and their own malware platforms and their own TTPs, their own ways of acting, uh, clearly coming together for a common goal? We're not talking about somebody stealing somebody else's source code or reusing you know, open source tools or things like that that might get folks confused. We're talking about you know, very complex platforms obviously being leveraged to play along. Mm. So for us, that essentially required us to expand our lexicon and required us to, to kind of shift our thinking and say, okay, let's create this other category where we're going to say, look, we know there was a collaboration. We know that many folks were in this room creating this very complex thing. And what can we know about them based on that collaboration? What can we understand about what they created on the basis of the fact that it was multiple people playing along? Perhaps to uh, strain the analogy to the breaking point, but um, would it be fair to say that uh, you have your threat actors, those are your, your superheroes, and the super threat actor would be like the Avengers? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Essentially, we wanted to look at the, the Avengers. My partner in crime, Silas, likened it to looking at the Led Zeppelin of threat actors. We were looking at a super group. 
right? I see. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so you know, you've got multiple the traveling the traveling wheelberries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, you right. have you have many good analogies for that. But yeah, it, it's essentially that, right? You when you have a difficult mission, and some would have likened it to trying to save the world. You know, you get the best folks in a room with a shared mission, and and you use everyone's particular skill set towards advancing that goal. Hmm. So it's a good analogy in a sense. Yeah. And so ultimately, where does this lead you? There was a series of discoveries. One of the more interesting ones among them was that there was, in fact, one more team involved in the, in the development of Stuxnet. So not to give you the convoluted timeline, because there's a lot of sort of weird things that, that come along as, as folks research Stuxnet. You know, the, the older versions were discovered after the newest versions. And so there's a lot of confusing things there. But when we started to look at some of the code similarity analysis from some of the oldest versions of Stuxnet that were ever discovered, we actually found connections to an entirely different threat actor that had never been linked to Stuxnet before. It's a threat actor called Flower Shop. It's also known as Cheshire Cat. It maps on for anybody that's following along at home. If you ever look at the territorial dispute research that Crisis Lab released in 2018. It maps on to Signature 17, Signature 18. So this is one of these player with a lot of longevity and a lot of expertise, but that has gone largely underreported and uh, had not been tied into some of the more interesting events that came along from, you know, 2010 and so on. Explain to me, what, what is the significance of that, of connecting those dots? Well, for us, it expands sort of the supergroup, right? So we it, it puts another person in the room. It gives us greater context as well. If you read through Symantec's research when they discovered Stuxnet and, and you know they were first publishing on it, they speculated as to a couple of things. First, they speculated that Stuxnet was probably in development as early as 2005, but they couldn't necessarily... Uh, prove that. It was, you know, just sort of a, a hunch based on a lot of different indicators that they'd seen. They also speculated that based on the specificity of some of the Stuxnet tooling, that there must have been a previous intelligence gathering platform that was utilized predating Stuxnet in order to gather some of the information they would need in order to design Stuxnet's components. So for us, it starts to fill some of those gaps. We discovered a component embedded within Stuxnet. The early Stuxnet module 231, resource 231, is something that we call Stuxshop. Uh, we call it that because it is built with code from the Flower Shop platform, but it's specifically built to be a Stuxnet module. So you hmm. know, a bit of overlap there. And what's very interesting about it is um, it's clearly designed using uh, a, an older platform. For example, it has code to handle things like dial-up windows. You know, if you remember back in the day of dial-up, if you ever tried to, <laughs> you know, back yeah. in, the, in prehistoric ages of dial-up, right, right. You know, if, if, your, if your machine tried to do something internet-related and you weren't connected to the internet, it would pop up that annoying little dial-up box. Mm -hmm. It would say, you know, would you like to dial-up? You're trying to do something related to internet connectivity. Now, if you're trying to infect machines that are air-gapped and are almost certainly not connected to the internet, and every time you try to reach out to a command and control server, the person using that computer gets a little dial-up window. That's suspicious. <laughs> yeah, so, shooting, up, shooting up a little bit of a flare there. Right. So, you know, you get that message 300 times a day and you're not doing anything Internet related. A little suspicious. So mm. one of the many things that, that the Stuck Shop module does is it does command and control communication in a way that subverts 
some of those things. So like that window would be hooked and suppressed, so it would never show up. And it would, you know, be a little more cognizant of the sort of system that it was embedded in. But that functionality all comes from this flower shop platform, which was actually active as early as 2002. This is a very old platform. Marion Marshallek did some fantastic reverse engineering of what she called Cheshire Cat, which were a handful of samples of Flower Shop. And the the things that she found, the malware was targeting Windows NT. Like we were talking about, uh, if I remember correctly, 95, 98, 2000, you know, wow. versions of Windows that are exceedingly old and that you have to design specifically for. So this is clearly, let's put it this way, the earliest versions of Stuxnet essentially delegated their command and control module to this team. Hmm. That's how command and control was handled until the later version of Stuxnet, the one that the researchers first ever discovered, the more aggressive version, which had taken over a lot of that functionality and dumped the flower shop code, which is why nobody found it back in those days. Now, one of the things that you dug into here was this sort of uh, resurrection of flame. Walk us through that because there's an interesting story there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll admit something. This is, uh, apart from fanboying, over the amazing work that the folks at Kaspersky, the folks at Symantec and Crisis Lab got to do in these days. You know, when you come in as a, as a younger malware researcher, you look at those days and go, you know, maybe I missed the boat. Maybe I missed like all the exciting stuff that was happening back in those days. And I always had an admiration for Flame, mostly over how advanced it was, over how visionary it was and, and how early on it was acting. And I, I was a little sad to have missed the main research boat on that. So it, it was very exciting as we were going through this, Flame was our original entry point with the Gossip Girl Threat Actor before we started taking the liberty of expanding what that term would go on to mean. And as we were closing the research, and I'll admit this was two weeks before we were going to give this talk, I was a little upset that Flame hadn't really yielded any results. So the operations that we knew were connected to Flame, which are Mini Flame and Gauss, uh, each kind of famous in its own right, when we look back at both of those, they died alongside Flame. It looks like Mini Flame was an older version that predated Flame. So of course, it goes out of fashion. Flame takes over for a period of years. Gauss is some kind of re-engineering of Flame that, that is operative for, you know, a couple of years. And then, you know, when Flame gets discovered, the people running Flame essentially burn down all of the infrastructure they issue a suicide module that cleans up all of the infections that were still out in the field. And everybody thought, you know, May 2012 is the day that Flame died. And what was Flame's functionality? Flame was essentially an espionage Swiss Army knife. Uh. So Flame would, you know, you would infect the machine with Flame. And from that point forward, you had access to about 30 modules to do a very specific espionage functions, some very interesting espionage functions. So everything from, uh, you know, backdooring that machine, creating a fake account so that you could have access to uh, being able to infect uh, USB modules to uh, more interesting things like uh, being able to beacon to nearby Bluetooth devices so that, you know, somebody nearby might be able to detect that that machine was infected, you know, somebody was trying to get information from there. Even more interesting things like the one of the modules in Flame called the Gadget module actually was one of the most interesting old school supply chain attacks. Hmm. So the Gadget module in Flame actually uses this cryptographic MD5 collision attack in order to fake legitimate 
Windows certificates, Microsoft certificates. So they do this. They use these fake certificates and essentially are able to subvert the Windows update functionality inside of an enterprise in order to spread. So from a supply chain attack perspective, you're basically turning Windows Update into your entry vector for lateral mm. movement into the rest of an enterprise. Hmm. You know, supply chain is all the rage now. And, you know, we're looking at all these fascinating attacks like Shadowhammer and CCleaner. But people forget. I mean, back in, in 2010, 2012, Flame was already doing this and doing it in a, in a more hardcore way than we've seen so far. Yeah. So people think that Flame is gone, but uh, not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case. The impression that we get is that the attackers thought that they could lay low, pretend to be dead, and wait until folks moved on. And it turns out that that, that was the case. In, 2000, in May 2012, there's the suicide module. Everything gets burned down. The threat intelligence industry moves on. They start to discover other things. They move on to other things. And then we discover that as early as 2014, new samples of a slightly retooled version of Flame started to be compiled, something that we call Flame 2.0. So what's very interesting about this is that those samples were re-engineered in order to be harder to analyze, in order to not be detected by, obviously, by the same detections that discovered the original Flame components. And more importantly, they were also faking all the timestamps to look like they were old Flame samples, just in case. So if hmm. somebody was looking back, they could say, oh, this is something people have already discovered, move on. But wow. there was an error. As early as the original version of Flame, there was a sort of a little bug that would embed the real compilation time of one of the underlying libraries. So they use a, a PuTTY library in order to do a lot of their network connections for you know, SSH and Telnet and so on. And that library, when you don't put a version number, actually spits out the time that it's compiled. So even though the flame sample might say, oh, I was compiled in 1997, which is obviously fake, the putty string would still say, hey, I was compiled in March 2012 or March 2014. So when we started to map those strings, we realized, oh, my God, we've been sitting on samples that were compiled two years after the flame suicide module. And that's what led us down the line. Why do you suppose you were able to connect these dots and other folks had missed it? There's a couple of different things there, right? So one of them is perspective. Obviously, seven years down the line, with a lot of other APT investigations under our belt in an ecosystem that has the benefits of so much information sharing, of so many folks working openly on threat intelligence, we come to this with very different perspective. But also, I honestly believe that most folks moved on from these operations and, and never really looked back. There's obviously a certain reticence to going back to some of these, these campaigns. There's also a reticence to going back to things that have already been researched, right? Like we all want to work on something new, something exciting. From a PR standpoint, you seldom get to call up a reporter and say, hey, I, I redid the work that this other company did six months ago. Would you like a story? Right. So some of the incentives are misaligned with going back and doing due diligence on, on things that have already been investigated in the past. What do you think the, the take home lesson is then with what you've gathered here by taking that look into the past? How does it inform what you're going to do going forward? 
I think there's several lessons in there, mostly for researchers, really. I mean, this is some of the take home is essentially trying to urge researchers to eat their vegetables and, and not just move on to the newest, hottest thing, but rather do go back take the time, look at some of the older operations, apply new tooling, apply new perspective. Don't assume that you know what's happening with a threat actor or, or with a campaign just because somebody already published on it, whether that was three months ago or, or five years ago. I also hope some of the lesson is also shared with folks that are trying to get into this industry. I meet a lot of students and, and different people that want to get into malware analysis. They want to get into threat intelligence. It's a largely undocumented field. It's hard to find uh, what feels like a good entry point unless you find somebody to essentially mentor you through it. And they always ask, you know, well, what can I work on? And Honestly, some of the best work you can do is just go back and take a second look at what's already been done. This isn't the only case of going back and discovering entirely new things. And from a defender standpoint, I mean, I think Flame, the Dooku 1.5 module, which we didn't really get to touch on, and, and Flame 2.0, I think that they're clear indications that just because something seems old, it doesn't mean that the threat has passed. There's nothing that says that because somebody published a blog that a threat actor closed shop. So hmm. as defenders, we definitely have a remit to uh, and a responsibility to, to make sure that we keep our tracking ongoing of these threat actors, particularly some of these apex threat actors, and make sure that, that we know where they are, even if we got to keep them in our peripheral vision, just to say, you know, we have this threat under monitoring, under control, we're tracking it, we know what to expect, and that, you know, something that we've considered dead, it won't just come back into play 18 months later and, and blindside us. Our thanks to Juan Andres Guerrero Sade for joining us. The research is titled, Who is Gossip Girl? It's on the Chronicle blog. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.